Bandwidth for Communication Lab is provided by Emphasis, world leaders in business writing training. For free resources and course information, go to www.writing-skills.com. Hello everyone, and we're here again. This is episode two, and I am with... Rob Ashton. That was very brief and explosive, Rob. I'm in a, I'm in a brief, sort of efficient, explosive sort of mood. And what have you been up to? Wow, what a week. Have you been uh, watching this new TV programme on, on BBC called Planet Word with, I've, uh, I've with seen, Stephen Fry? I've um, seen one episode because I have to watch it on catch-up because it clashes with Downton Abbey. Okay, so I think I think probably the UK audience uh, yeah. can be divided into those who watch Downton Abbey yep. and those who watch Planet Word. And Get. those that watch Planet Word on catch-up. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> so it's three. Okay, yeah, want their cake and eat it. Um, well, I fall into the uh, latter category, um, or the middle one, uh, people are actually watching Planet Word. And for those uh, of our listeners who aren't based in the UK, I would imagine that with uh, Planet Word, it's going to be one of those things that BBC Worldwide is distributing uh, globally before long, because yeah. uh, it's um, it certainly has all the makings of, uh, of TV gold, I would say. Um, basic premise, uh, Stephen Fry who is often referred to here in the UK as a national treasure. He is. is and Polymath is, um, is investigating the, uh, the, the language, not just English language, but mm-hmm. the use of language. Uh, includes one of my favourite subjects, uh, psycholinguistics, and how mm-hmm. uh, psychology and language interact. Um, great episode this week because um, it was all about writing is obviously a subject really close to our, our hearts here on the programme. And what did he say about writing? Well, do you know what? Writing began in ancient Iraq. What do you think it was for? Do you think it was for poetry? Uh, presumably uh, to store information for, for later use, to remember things. Ooh, maybe, maybe. What kind of information do you think? Uh, counting things, I'm guessing. Re- yeah, absolutely. Mm. Taxes. Taxes? Taxes, uh, absolutely. It was to enable... It was for bureaucratic reasons, basically. Mm. It was to enable um, tax officers to, to keep records. Right. Doesn't surprise me. Well, you know, but I like that because, you know, those uh, that we, we work with a lot of accountants. Mm. Um, so I think accountants can can sort of really justifiably lay claim to, uh, to writing and say, Do you know, we, we did it first, which is not something you probably would have thought of, although you would have. Uh, not certainly something I would have thought of. But, you know, also in a, in a wider sense, it means business writing was here before... Uh, before art, before you know, before poetry, before okay. before so let, great let me literature. Get this right. Writing was invented by um, accountants in Iraq. Yes, as far as we can tell. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What else did he say about writing? Oh, oh, loads of stuff. You have to just go and watch it. It's a good program. Now. I love it's, Stephen Fry. It's, yeah, it's, it's it's a really good program. The the other thing that's um, that I've been doing is I've discovered some absolutely fascinating research. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you a question, Andy. Go on. Um, what do you think are the most common words, commonly used words in the English language? Um, hmm. Let me think. Probably um. <laughs> well, it is It is when I'm, uh, when I'm recording. That, that's, that's for sure. No, let me think. Um, the, it... As, and, and. Oh, and. you're really close. And. The most commonly used word is I. I. Mm, personal pronoun. Mm, um, okay. Now, what about, what about you and we? Where, where do you think they come in, in the list of most commonly used words? Okay, I think I know where this is going. So Go I'm on. going to guess that uh, you and you would be quite low down. Because I think we're all very selfish and we talk about I a lot. 
and Wii is also quite low down, I'm guessing. Well, not not so low down, but certainly a lot further low down in, in the pecking order than, than I is. Mm. Uh, U is 12th in the most commonly used words, okay. and, and Wii doesn't even make the top 20. Okay. Right now, you could use this as a as yet more evidence, as you say, of how how selfish we are. You know, we're, we're all self obsessed, mm. and um, a lot of people talk about how we should turn that upside down. Um, uh, I've heard it said, that, you know, don't we all over your sentences, which means nothing to people who aren't in the UK. Um, <laughs> that means to pass water for our American uh, listeners. Yes, thank you all, and yes, absolutely, not not necessarily the case. So I'll tell you a bit more about that. But this this research that I've been reading about is by uh, a professor of psychology Mm -hmm. at the University of Texas at Austin. Mm -hmm. Now, this guy, a guy called James Pennebaker, he's uh, made a real study about the link between language and health. So, for instance, if whether you, you express your feelings, whether that makes you healthier. So that's where he started, and he's, he's written some very good books on this. Um, Does it? Does it make you healthier? Well, you see, it just depends on what you write about and how you write it. So, so what he discovered, for instance, is that it's not the fact that you're just expressing something that's happened, mm. but whether you can, for instance, make a coherent story out of it. Um, so if you, can, if you can make sense of something that's happened... Um, then you are likely to feel better. Now, I like that in regard to business writing because if you because one of the things about writing is it's really deceptive. If you you know just imagine you're going to write a long document, and uh, there are two things you could do: you could either work out a plan first, or you could just launch in, mm. and you could use the writing process to work out what you think. That's what okay, I do. Okay. I do that. Now, at the end, the odds are you might feel pretty pleased with the result. Be- uh, and the reason for that is that you have made sense of it. Mm. So this goes back to what Professor Pennebaker said, which is that uh, if you can build a coherent story, then that makes you at ease with yourself. And he was looking at the effects of, uh, of writing uh, on people who, who suffer from, you know, have had sort of quite intense psychological trauma. Um, so with business writing, it, it is deceptive because if you come up with this, what you think is a logical structure, uh, because you've been writing and at the end of it, you think, oh yeah, that makes sense. Mm. It may not be. In fact, what it, what it might be is a, a sort of a permanent record of what might be a very jumbled thought process, but you feel better because making a coherent story as far as you're concerned. This is like journal writing, isn't it? Because journal, don't you do the same with journal writing? This is why journal writing is so... You hear a lot of sort of um, mental health and health people saying, oh, keep one of the good things you should do is keep a journal. Yeah, yeah. Because you're, you're sorting out your, your thoughts. Yeah, and what he would say is it's not as simple as that. And of course, it, it seldom is with, with science. Mm. Um, you know, he would say that you need to make a coherent story out of it. So you, you are sorting your thoughts. But also he looked at pronouns. Um, so he looked at the use of, of, um, of, of words like um, I and we and you and it and they um, and, and how we use them. And he found that, when, that switching. So if you, if you use personal pronouns all the time mm. in your writing, that can be a sign of depression. Um, but if you switch between personal pronouns, me, I, to talking about other people, so start talking about you and they, yes. and switch between the two, that can actually be a sign of being in a, in a better place psychologically. So here's the interesting question. Can you control your mood 
by controlling your pronouns? I don't know. But what I do know is that um, you can, I'm sure that these things, in fact, Professor Pennebaker says this, we are quite good at judging mm. um, someone's state of mind or, or just picking up on these subliminal signals by reading these pronouns except we do it we do it subconsciously there are without, without realizing the, absolutely there are dedicated areas of the brain or not dedicated is too strong but there are discrete areas of the brain mm. where if they are knocked out by some accident you lose the ability to do this fascinating stuff um he talks about function words and what he means by this are not just pronouns but prepositions mm. and, and articles um now a preposition is that's a word like like in beside um, under, it, I've heard it described as anywhere a cat can go. It can go under the table, it can go beside the table, it can go on the table. Okay. Those are all prepositions. So you've got you've got pronouns that I've mentioned already. You've got prepositions, um, and then you've also got articles. So these are words like the and and a, uh, an, right. um, and and those together he's called function words, and these make up a staggering fifty five percent of the words we use. Now, the, okay. So they're the most commonly used words. Now, now an average um, native English speaker would have a would would have a vocabulary of about a hundred thousand words. Fifty five percent of of the time, they are using just these four hundred odd words that that are these these function words that Professor Pennebaker uh, refers to. So they are. I mean, in fact, he's he's written a whole book on this called "The Secret Life of Pronouns." Uh, go and buy it. It's fantastic. Really amazing book. You mentioned um, a big long word at the beginning. Was it psycho something? Is this does this all come under this category of psycho psycholinguistics? Psycholinguistics. Yeah, it yeah. It, it does. Yeah. yeah, and he's yeah. he's looking at the the psychology of language, and and we, I think as we as we move forward with this podcast, this is something we're going to be exploring mm. more and more, and just looking at how you can use a knowledge of this um, to uh, to convey a particular impression. So you know, if you, it's I think. In some respects, when you're talking, mm. you have less control over these function words. You'll just you'll just use them. But I think you have much more control over them when you're when you're writing or, or when say yeah. when you're editing what you write. And I think if we can look at a, a way of um, of controlling those and saying, okay, this is the impression I want to give. Um, therefore, I need to do this with these function words. Mm. You know, th- that would be a- amazing for conveying a particular impression. Um, and it also incredibly useful for, say, building a, a personal or even a corporate brand. It's very, very powerful stuff. But why does he call them function words? Do we know? No. Is there an obvious reason? No. Maybe, maybe we can get him on the program. We can ask him, can't we? We must ask him. Yeah. That, that'll be. Uh, I, I don't know. But I mean, he's got. He talks about stealth words um, mm. because these words are that they almost sort of get get under our skin. We don't even notice we're using them. Mm. Um, and in fact, he talks about the Gettysburg Address, which was. Uh, Again, apologies to our American listeners. Uh, um, my, my understanding so, of the so, Gettysburg on, Address so as an Englishman. Just a, yes, just a warning to, to American listeners. We have two Englishmen trying to talk about American history. If we get it wrong, please just let us know. <laughs> yeah, right to Andy White. No, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah. We're uh, just doing it for our English listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't know about it. Yes. And, and so American listeners, shut your ears. But um, the, the Gettysburg Address made by Abraham Lincoln mm. um, 
widely regarded as one of the most important speeches in, in U.S. history. Uh, he made it at the, the commemoration of a, a cemetery um, where thousands of, of uh, soldiers had died uh, mm. in the American Civil War. And at the end of this address, um, he, he talks about ensuring the survival of America's uh, representative democracy. And this was where the phrase... Uh, government of the people by the people for the people and that shall not perish from the earth that's a it's quite a famous phrase now in this in this amazing speech which was quite short by the way these function words make up over a third so people think about nouns and and, and action words and you think it's a, it's a really powerful speech he must have been using nouns well of course he was but the most commonly used words were these function words these these stealth words and I think if we can somehow, this, this is my theory, I don't know if it's possible, mm. maybe you say, we can ask Professor Pennebaker, but if it's possible to control your language when you write um, so that you control, you can turn up the power or turn it down again mm. uh, of your writing and convey a particular brand, um, I just think that would be a, an amazing, an amazing thing to do. Very, very powerful writing, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know, I've been doing this for 13, 13 and a half years. Mm. And, uh, and this particular book, I have to say, is the, it, it's, it's one of the best books I've ever read. This, this is an amazing piece of original research. I mean, it's, it's a truly original book. You know, you get books I'm writing that are just rehashing mm. the same old ideas. Um, this isn't. This, this is original stuff. Um, you know, there's other stuff in there about, you know, I ask you about you, me, I and we. You know, th- a lot of the advice that's that that's perpetuated out there it's always given is that you should use i less and and we more yes to, to be more inclusive we. what this research is saying is that uh, and in fact there, there was some uh, he refers to some focus groups in one of the u.s presidential elections where uh, john mccain was perceived to be quite distant uh, mm. and aloof or, or rather um, quite, quite sort of corporate and phony because he used the word we a lot. So he, right. he was trying to be inclusive, but he sounded really corporate and phony, uh, whereas uh, George W. Bush um, used I a lot and he sounded much more genuine. I think what it says is, you know, whether people make that, I'm not getting into that, into whether it's the right decision or not, but mm. I'm saying that actually use the use of language in this way and using these these quite innocuous words um can have a a a tremendously uh powerful effect on on your writing yeah we'll definitely have to try and get this author on there's one one final point on this um which is that uh i I mentioned articles and these are words like um we talk about the definite article which is which is the for instance and we talk about the indefinite articles such as such as an or a um now not all languages use these and in fact, these articles often get left out as a result in translation. Um, and, and that led me to thinking about mistranslation, mm. which is, this is off. Sorry, this is off topic now, but um, we're going off piece. We, we are really going off piece. So hold, hold on to your hats. This, this could go anywhere. But I've heard it said that if you, if you think about things being translated, think about the European Union. Mm. Uh, we have a European Commission and... Um, that's and directives that are passed at the by the European Commission have to be enacted into national law. Now, unlike the US, for instance, where you have federal law and state law, yes, you can think of of the European Commission as, as federal law, if you like. Mm. Um, but then, that federal law in this particular case, EU law, has to be enacted in, into international law in order to take effect. And generally, we have very little choice in this. But the glue 
that holds together the European Union, for how much longer, I don't know, but the glue that holds us together is um, mistranslation. Okay. Because... That's the glue, is it? Th- that's the glue. It's all right. based on mistakes, basically, because okay. um, I've, I've heard it said that if things are being translated from, say, English into Greek or German or from French into English, you're going to have to change things slightly. And the you, meaning will uh, change And that, slightly. of course, gives you an opportunity to just change the nuance of something. Mm. So the law that we have in the UK might be subtly different from the law in France or the law in Germany, and yet they're all supposed to be enacting the same directive. Uh, and these, these articles are ones that, that can be lost, um, but you've only got to think of in French where you've got um, uh, a polite form of mm. addressing people uh, with vous. And then you have the informal form, which is two. Mm. And we, we no longer have that in English. We used to have thou and, and you, but now, now we just have you. Um, so that gets lost for a start. And there are lots of other little national variants which, which can change. So I just love the idea that this, this huge political body, this, you know, this, this, this union, um, is actually held together by, by mistakes, basically. But why does it hold it together? I can't understand why it holds it together. Because that's the only way to get these directives passed into national law. Otherwise, everybody would be kicking up a fuss saying, oh, no, we're not doing that. We're not, and they say, it's okay, it's fine. It's all in the translation. Right. And, you know, they translate things subtly differently. Ah, oh, you know, you, you might think they do this deliberately. I couldn't possibly comment. But I, I just love the idea that by these national variants in law and translation, you can change the nuance of something slightly deliberately or accidentally, and that that can make a particular directive more acceptable to um, the population of a particular country. Rob, was there anything further you wanted to discuss on this topic? No. Okay. Oh, oh yes, there is a, a Professor Pennebaker, last word on him. Um, he's come up with a, or his colleagues have come up with a programme that analyses how much you use these function words. If you go to secretlifeofpronouns.com, mm. uh, you can, you can, you'll find a programme there that will enable you to, uh, to analyse um, your own writing for these stealth words. So presumably you just offer it a load of, a bunch of text that you've written and it does some analysis for you. Yeah, yeah. Sounds if you, very good. It's all, it's all there on the website, but you can, you can find out how to do it there. St- secretlifeofpronouns.com. We were having a conversation before we were recorded about um, a letter that Tony Blair wrote about his regrets on the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah, I, I love this, actually. I, I, love, I love the concept of unintended consequences. Mm. Um, think about the, uh, the recent riots that we, that we had here in the UK. Um, and the, as you might expect, of course, widespread public outrage at that, mm. um, which tends to produce a, a knee-jerk response um, with people sort of... Uh, advocating all sorts of extreme measures to to bring these people to heel. And uh, a couple of those were, well, if these um, crimes, if people who are looting um, are um, have housing that's paid for by the state, social housing, council housing, and have um, social security benefits, then these should be taken away uh, if, the, if they're found guilty of looting. Now, you can then say, well, hang on, are you then punishing their families as well as the mm-hmm. looters? Um but then you can also say, well, hang on a minute. If we take their benefits away, so they have less, so they have no money anymore, mm-hmm. uh, and we take their shelter away, so they have no housing, um, is that not going to make them more likely to commit crimes? Now, once again, I'm not going to be political, mm. but there is definitely you, you need to think a little bit beyond what you're saying, don't you? And say, well, actually, if we do that, what will happen? Mm. Now, 
the Freedom of Information Act has been in the news recently. Um, now, I, I was doing some research on this. F- the Freedom of Information Act uh, in the US was passed in 1966. The Freedom of Information Act in the UK was yes. passed in the year 2000. So a little bit behind the curve. We're, we're a bit late yeah. coming to the party with that. And it sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? You know, the, the um, government documents, unless there's a, a sound commercial or national security reason, government documents should be available to the public. Mm. And this was actually an election promise of uh, the Labour Party in their 1997 election campaign that they would introduce a Freedom of Information Act. And the, the leader of the Labour Party at that time was uh, Tony Blair, who went on to become prime minister in in a a landslide victory of course yeah now this wasn't and to give you some idea of how complicated and i think maybe how culturally difficult this is for us in the uk um this didn't actually become law so the act was passed there was an act of parliament passed in the year 2000 didn't actually come into effect as a as law um until 2005 right and leading up to that millions of civil servants went on courses to learn about you know, their responsibilities under the Freedom of Information Act. Mm. And um, Tony, Tony Blair has actually been in the news recently just expressing some regret, saying, do you know what, I'm not sure that Freedom of Information Act was, was a very good idea. But somebody's, somebody's written in, in response to that into the Guardian newspaper, and they've said that on these courses, uh, civil servants were told to delete from documents anything that was uh, subjective, for which there was no evidence. And... This guy contends that, as a result, all communications that's recordable in the public sector is anodyne and benign and sterile. And that historians, if they look back to documents from the early 21st century, what they'll see is this kind of wall of bland. Uh, They'll see a lot of blacked out phrases and sentences. uh, It's not just the blacked out phrases. It's the fact that people, if they've been on, because that's... That's sort of retrospective, isn't it? Mm. But if you're writing a document and you know that this is going oh, to be put into the, into yeah. the, into the public about domain, as they write it, yeah, as they write yeah. it. So, so whereas you know this this act was passed to to make uh, as a kind of a great liberalising piece of um, piece of legislation, it's the opposite effect because what what it's done is it's made us far more secretive, and you know the way you write can affect the way you think. So oh, I, yeah. I just wonder if 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 that Act, that Freedom of, Inf- of Information Act has actually made made our public sector uh, and made the, the people who were who were working in the civil service less imaginative, maybe, or at least given them a way to. Uh, of course, it hasn't made made them less imaginative, but it's it's really hampered them. Is it making them dumbing down their their sort of documents. It's not dumbing Dumb down, down. It's a blandizing. Blandizing. A blandizing. Is such a word as blandizing. Uh, blandizing. Well, if you can aggrandize, I think you can blandize. Yeah, as a blandizing. Well. That's with a Z for our American uh, listeners. That's uh, so, <laughs> sort of an S. Um, <laughs> so yes, they've, uh, they, it's it's made them a blandize their documents, which of course was uh, was never the intention. There you go. Uh, unintended consequences. Okay. We were thinking of calling this Tip of the Week, but then we realised it wasn't a weekly show. It was probably a fortnightly show. Uh, then I thought, well, should we call it Give of the Week? Let's just call it the Tip of the Show. We've still got Week. You have or Give of the, the Week. Of the we show. can't call yeah. it Top of the Show. Yeah. No, yes. it's, uh, I think we'll stick with Tip of the Week. And, it's the tip of the Period. Uh, yeah, something Tip of the like Release that. Period. Uh, yes. Okay, let's stop there anyway. <laughs> or just the Tip. <laughs> the Tip. No, yeah. that's, uh, anyway, right, Tip of the Week. Um, proofreading. And this sort of bringing us back to the practical and, and what we can actually do to improve this is just, our writing. This is reading a document after you think you've finished it. 
Or getting someone else to read That's it. That's part of it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, getting someone else to read it is uh, is one tactic. Yeah. Um, trouble with giving someone else uh, a document to read is um, you can be sure of one thing. They will give you feedback. Now, whether that feedback is based on what Mr. Davis in the, in the third grade told you or whether it's based on just personal prejudice, uh, they're still going to give you feedback. So mm. it's risky. I think talking, you're far better off talking about, about a document before you write it to help you clarify what you want to write. Um, what, talking to yourself about a document? No, talk to somebody else. Talk to someone else, yeah, right. Talk to the dog, if you, you know, but actually just there's something again about, about talking it through. Mm. Again, going back to this research, making a coherent story before you actually start writing it down, though. So you've got to really, um, you don't want your thinking to be on the page. Anyway, proofreading. Going back to what we were talking uh, about Proofreading, earlier. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, proofreading, um, you really need to get some kind of distance. So the reason you people suggest going to somebody else is because um, essentially love is blind. When you've laboured over something for, for days, you're so relieved when you finished it that you won't see the mistakes. Because it's your baby. Yeah, incidentally, the best way to spot every single error even those that you'd previously failed to spot, is to print about 5,000 copies and distribute them nationally. Uh, we've discovered this. Uh, so <laughs> it's perhaps not the cheapest method of... Uh, Nor very environmentally uh, friendly. No, no, but it does work. It works, right. uh, works incredibly well. And it does tend to stop you making that mistake again, incidentally. Mm. Um, anyway, proofreading, best way to do it, print out. Again, not very environmentally friendly, mm. but print out your documents. And uh, there's something about seeing something in a different form mm. that makes you spot mistakes. It's weird. Even creating a PDF of a Word document on screen. I was going to suggest screen, that. I was wondering about that. That, does, that yeah. does work to a degree. Yeah. It doesn't work quite as well as printing it out, but mm. it does work. So there's somehow it, it just makes the brain dissociate, disconnects the brain from, from you, the author. Mm. Uh, and it's like you're reading it as somebody else will read it. So, so print it out. And if you can't do that, um, uh, then, then just create a PDF and look at that on screen. Use a pointer and uh some kind of straight edge such as a blank sheet of paper yes um or a, or a ruler and look at each line individually and point to each word individually this is a bit like speed reading isn't it that's what it's, you do with speed reading it's like speed reading but not not fast but it's slow it's slow so, reading. so in that res- in that respect it's not really like speed reading okay it's more like sort of slow, slow reading. reading slow very, reading very but you still use a pointer slow reading right yeah but you still use you still use a pointer mm. But what you do, if you really want to be sure, because the place where you are least likely to spot these mistakes is in headlines, that the bigger the type, mm. the less likely you are to spot a mistake. And of course, the more likely your reader is to see it. Right. Uh, and I, I know I've, I've seen this. I've actually set proofreading tests and I've made an absolute howler. It, I, I gave somebody an article to read um, on the workings of the human heart. And I wrote the headline at the top. I put, the brain and they, they spotted lots of mistakes in the text and Hang they on. didn't miss the fact that i <laughs> so called it the brain and not the heart you headed it the wrong organ <laughs> uh, i gave it the totally the wrong heading in in in, in uh, and made it as obvious as i could uh, and okay. and they didn't spot that and this was this was for a job interview this was a job mm. selection test mm. so that that to me in that that statistically unrepresentative uh, sample of one all, all that says to me <laughs> is that if a word is big 
you you just assume that it must be right. Well, this is what they were probably thinking. They were probably thinking, oh, this is an interview. I don't want to upset him. He's probably done that for a reason. I've seen it on magazines, though. I mean, I've, I'm underplaying it slightly. I have seen people do this in, in magazines. Mm. We shared an office with uh, with another magazine. Um, and uh, the uh, editor of, of this magazine was called was called Susan. Mm-hmm. It's a magazine called, I don't know, Needlecraft or something. And um, basically what they did was they just wrote in some placeholder copy as the headline. Yeah. And they wrote, no doubt Susan will type something jolly interesting here. Okay. Don't tell me they left it in. And, that, and they left that in. And that <laughs> and it got published. That got distributed across the nation. Um, but it was worse than that because um, in the same publisher, there was an IT magazine where they were slightly more laddish. Mm. And they put for their placeholder copy type some bollocks in here and, and that and that <laughs> went to press went really got, well. <laughs> uh, with the target readership yeah but you know i've seen this in newspapers i've seen caption 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 underneath pictures have because, you really because people have just failed to spot it they just assume mm. that it's fine so let that be a warning to you listeners um proofreading is particularly important um but you need to do something physical very definite to yeah. to disconnect your brain from the writing process and just switch into reader yeah. mode it's a very different process it's very much like because i'm a developer it's very much like programming and when you're actually cutting code programming code your brain is in one sort of mode and that's why it's so crucial to write tests because when you're writing the tests your brain has to be in a completely different mode and it sounds similar to this when you're writing you're in like writing mode but then you've got to flip your brain over to sort of reading mode i suppose if you like yeah. Completely changed the modes. Yeah. And it's this whole thing about hiding in clear sight. Have you seen that video? There's a, there's a video on YouTube of. Um, it's a video of about 12 people playing basketball. And at the bottom it says, Can you spot yes. how many times this ball is passed? Yes, I have seen this. And, you yeah. see, and at the end it says, Right at the end when it says, Well, how many times? And then it says, Did you spot the bear walking through the middle? And it's no a gorilla. It's a gorilla. It was like man in a gorilla suit. Man in a gorilla yeah. suit. No and one. it's there. On the second viewing, you see it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's incredible. So um, I guess what we're saying is that our brain isn't that reliable. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so use a pointer. And for, for headlines, so that you don't end up with types mm. of bollocks in here incidentally that's a, a very good very good uh, reason um never to put just placeholder copy in there or if you do make it say headline headline don't don't <laughs> you never actually put real text in there because i, do. I usually use blah or foo because i'm a programmer well you see you know somebody so you, if you give that to a proofreader they mm. they might not pick that up yeah. well blah probably but uh yeah, but foo uh, maybe not maybe not but uh yeah so with headlines read backwards so point mm. to every individual word mm. start at the end of the of, of the main title and and then and then work backwards word by word um so to the uh, front. Uh, to the front, yeah. Now, why do you do that? Uh, because it disconnects the sentence. So oh, you, don't, you okay. don't anticipate what's coming up. Mm. Um, because th- th- that's what happens. If you've written something, what you read is what you think you've written, yeah. not yeah. what you've actually written. Uh, so, you know, again, you, you need to, you another, need to another classic is duplication of words, like, you know, in a Paris in the, the spring or something. Yeah. Yeah. Especially yeah. if they, if it's on a turn, oh, sort of the yeah. end of one line and beginning of on another line. Yeah. And, and these are course of things that, um, well, spell checks may well pick that up, but what ah. sp- spell checks won't pick up is homophones. So words that sound the same, sound but the mean same. different things. Yes. And there are so many of those, um, mm. in, uh, particularly in the English language. Um, so, you know, it's it, proofreading is essential. If you can get some kind of distance from it by leaving it for a couple of days, then that will help. Mm. Um, but, you know, most people are busy. 
Uh, and although you can give that advice, they still end up doing... It's like doing your homework, you know, on a Sunday evening when it's got to be in the next morning. It's the same with reports. People write them at the last minute. So if you can actually come up with a way to um, proofread effectively uh, and reduce uh, the error rates without printing 5,000 copies and distributing mm. them nationwide, um, then, you know, it's, it's worth learning that technique and, and this should help, Andy. So it's goodbye from me, Andy White, and... It's goodbye from me, Rob Ashton. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Communication Lab was brought to you by Emphasis Business Writing Trainers. Sign up for free training at www.writing-skills.com. Hold up. 